Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. Uh, the reading for today is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 17 through 26. Uh, the text will be on the screen as I read as well. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. Um, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or, you do, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter, for I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, it's nice to meet you all. Uh, parents with uh, kids through second grade, they may be dismissed for children's church. And a reminder to pick them up either right before or right after uh, you take communion this morning. Uh, for those of you that are visiting, uh, we are in the midst of a sermon series on 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're in a, there's a bunch of different sections of 1 Corinthians, and we're in this section that goes from about chapter 11 uh, through chapter 14, and they're all issues that deal with what we do when we gather as a church for corporate worship during these church gatherings, and he's taken on different issues that this particular church in Corinth was dealing with and how to overcome those things with the unity that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will be uh, finishing up 1 Corinthians at the end of June, and then we are going to go into a sermon series we do every summer called Summer in the Psalms. Uh, we do about 10 psalms every, every summer, and this summer we are tackling Psalms 71 through 80. Why don't we go ahead and pray and dive into the text this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we gather as a people with hope in your gospel and hope that your word um, can transform, can renew, and can stitch back such a broken world. Many times we come here, Lord, and maybe woke up this morning reading things in our news feeds that just discourage our souls. Maybe we saw news about the war in Ukraine or shooting that happened in Buffalo and other types of sins and injustices and divisions that seem to be all around us. And we may come here, Lord, discouraged about what can bring humanity back together, what can repay, repair us. And Lord, we want to hear your word now speak into a divided world that's broken by sin and injustice. We want to hear hope. We want to see forgiveness. We want to see the power of the gospel 
at work in bringing broken sinners together. So give us that hope now in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're ever looking for a good laugh, then one of the things I would recommend doing is look at some Google reviews of local churches because they can be hilarious. Now, I'm going to share some with you. I'm not going to tell you whether this is about Trinity City Church or not. If it's their Google reviews, I'll leave that to your imagination. But let, let me give you some examples of how some folks who attend local churches review those local churches when they're done. And I'll have, uh, just in case you don't believe me, uh, the actual review up there that uh, another website pulled together. So this is one review. This person says, quote, this is a lovely church. I'm giving it a one star as the cafeteria is horrifying. I have ordered from here three times and each time I have ordered, there has been hair in my food. Big turnoff. I attend here occasionally, but I will never eat in the cafeteria. I'm not sure why there's always hair in the food. Just writing this reminds me of the horror of eating food with hair in it. Also, my friend had hair in her food as well, and I would rather go to McDonald's up the road than eat after church service in their cafeteria. Sounds like this church needs the spiritual gift of a hairnet. Uh, here's another review, a little bit shorter. This guy says, quote, bit churchy for me. The church was too churchy. I was wondering what the expectations were. Two stars for that one. Next review, maniacs, frighteningly fanatic and happy, over-the-top vibes, not a place with, for anyone with anxiety. Feels like a capitalistic market, not a church. So this is, the critique was this church was too happy, having too much of a good time, right? Here's another one. Gives me a culty vibe, but nice architecture of the main building. Curious who the architect is. <laughs> culty church, beautiful building. That's great. And here's the last one I'll share with you. Quote, good church if you can get into the inner circle, which is mission impossible. There certainly is many talented people in this church, and they do put on good shows. If it was a theater, I would give it 4.5 stars. He gave it two stars if you're looking at that, so not the 4.5. I thought of these reviews because when you read um, these verses in 1 Corinthians, it comes across like Paul is giving a review of this church in Corinth. And this is what he says in the opening verse in the section today as a reminder. Paul says, in the following directives, I give, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. One star. That's what Paul would have put for church in Corinth. You want to go to this church? Well, they do more harm than good when they get together. There's no praise. I have nothing positive to say about this church. And then he's going to unpack a specific reason why, and it's because of the division and abuse that's happening, particularly when they eat the Lord's Supper together. So we're going to go into that and figure out and look at what is going on that causes such a negative review from the Apostle Paul when we're going to see the divisions that are happening at the table and God's judgment that's also occurring there. And then we're going to remember what the table is all about. So let's start with divisions at the table. Let's see what's going on here. Verses 18 through 19. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. <clears throat> So why the harsh review? Well, when this church gathers in Corinth, there's division. 
And it's going to be helpful for you to picture what's going on by not picturing this church experience, per se, when you're in a sanctuary or a larger room uh, in a kind of a former liturgical setting. Uh, the church in Corinth would have been a little bit different, even if there would have been similarities in how they gather for worship. More than likely, this was a house church experience where they're gathering in somebody's home, and that it isn't just this formal meal uh, where you get a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine. This would have been more of like a potluck. So picture like a potluck social setting within a house, and Christians are gathering there to eat this meal together and to gather there for worship. Picture a host in a home and Christians going to that home where there's guests, there's drinks, there's food, and there's socialization. We have a, a, a similar experience at Trinity for the community groups that practice taking communion together with a potluck uh, during Monday, Thursday, and Holy Week. So it would be more like that setting. And then verse 19, Paul says, after he says these divisions are happening, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. How do differences show God's approval? And this is going to point ahead to some of the verses that are coming later where Paul is going to talk about God's judgment. When God judges, he approves some and condemns others. He separates the sheep from the goats. And so these divisions that are happening in this house church gathering are revealing who are following the ways of God and practicing communion appropriately and those who are not. But more on that a little bit later. Look at verses 20 through 22. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. So the divisions of this church are getting so bad that verse 20 makes it clear that what you're doing can no longer be called the Lord's Supper anymore. What you're doing is the opposite of the purpose of the Lord's Supper and how it brings Christians together to be nourished by the gospel. So what's happening? Some people, when they describe what's happening, uh, commentators say that the phrase go ahead in verse 21 means that people are eating a bunch of food and drinking the wine before others get there. Others emphasize that phrase that the NIV translates as private suppers, which means that when the church gathers in this house church, what likely is happening is that there's this private room where more well-to-do Christians are gathering and they're having the best food, the best wine, and there's more of a commons area, probably outside of the house where the rest of the Christians are gathering, and they're not participating in that level of fellowship and intimacy and, and, and with that exquisite meal that the rest of them get to enjoy. So in this setting, there's a literal division happening within the same house where there's this private supper club thing that's happening and not all the rest of the Christians get to be a part of that. There's a room where it happens and then there's the space for the rest of the Christians outside of that room. And that's why some are enjoying so much wine that they're getting drunk while others leave this worship setting hungry with barely anything in their stomach. And Paul rebukes them. The church gathering is not a supper club where only some get to enjoy an extravagant meal and others do not. And this action, he says, is humiliating those 
who do not have the means or the social status that put them in that private room. And what this shows, if you're participating in the Lord's Supper and church gatherings in this way, with this level of division, what it shows is that you have contempt for the church of God, Paul writes. So he has no praise for this division. And what it actually shows is God's judgment. And he unpacks that more in the, the final verses of this section. Look at verses 27 through 29. He says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and, the, and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. These verses are often read in some church settings to prepare the church for this meal, for the Lord's Supper, but they're often misunderstood. Sometimes when we see that phrase, unworthy manner, we think that this means we have to have some type of high righteousness or perfection to come to this table. Or we read the examine oneself, and we think that it means that we have to have this deep, intense introspection before you come to this table. And I think these are, these are misreadings of the text. In the original context, this is what's happening where these verses are taking place. A group of Christians are excluding others from the fellowship of the Lord's Supper, and they're doing so in a humiliating way. And so those who are taking the supper in an unworthy manner are those that are creating these divisions. They need to examine themselves, that is, they need to ask these questions. Are you the one that's causing the divisions? Are you part of the group that's humiliating other brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you in these private dinners eating and drinking your fill while others are leaving hungry? And if this is you, then you do not understand the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And as you continue to practice this little supper club, you're eating and drinking God's judgment upon you. That's specifically what's going on in this text, and that's why he wants the church to examine themselves, to consider if they're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And, God, and Paul says that there is a, there's tangible evidence that God's judgment is taking place. Look at verses 30 through 32. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Now, these verses are a bit shocking to modern ears in a secular society. We're looking at this, and if you're like me, you're like, are we literally to understand that people in this church are abusing the Lord's Supper, they're dividing against each other, and then they fall under God's judgment, which is visibly displayed by some people getting weak and sick and even dying? Are we, that's how we're supposed to understand this, this set of verses? Is that really what's going on? Now, it's true that people can take a verse like this and abuse it. There's no doubt about it. That sometimes that you are, that Christians overuse verses about God's judgment to say that any type of 
suffering that somebody goes through, any type of sickness that somebody goes through, is attributed to some type of sin or historical situation. It would be like you get in in a fight with your spouse or your housemate, and right afterwards they stub their toe and you say, see, see, that's God's judgment and wrath coming on your head because you were in the wrong and I'm in the right in this argument. So therefore, this incident of pain and suffering came upon you because of God's judgment. That's probably not a wise thing to do. We don't see God's judgment under every nook and cranny. There's a way of abusing a, a, verse, a set of verses like this. Yet, we still have to remember as Christians that the scriptures do show that God is not only sovereign in judgment at the end of history, but he's also able and does bring a measure of judgment or discipline right now. And there's a long list of stories in the scriptures of this happening in the Old and New Testament. So although there is a certain danger of over-attributing God's judgment behind every type of calamity, there's also a danger, I think, brothers and sisters, in never thinking that God could be involved in this manner in the world today. God is not distant. He is active in the, in the world and in the church, and he cares deeply about how human beings treat one another and especially the unity of his church. And in this case, God is disciplining those who are dividing the church. And why is he doing that? The text says, because he does not want them to be condemned with the rest of the world. They are on a pathway of not only division, but death and judgment in the end. And he wants to purify and discipline his church because he loves his church and wants to see them come back together. God is getting involved in this because he cares. And that also means that God gets involved in his church today. This isn't just on us, but God deeply cares about what we do and what every local church does when we gather uh, in his name. This is why churches often, again, prepare us for this table before we eat and drink of it every single week. This, these verses are getting at a general truth. We consider that we're unworthy. That means that we are all sinners and imperfect when we come to this table. And that's why we often pray the prayer of forgiveness and hear God's assurance through his forgiveness through the gospel. And there's another reason why we examine our hearts and that church liturgy prepares us each and every week for this table by reminding us what this table is all about and what the purpose of the table is, which is what Paul does in verses 23 through 26. There's all this abuse. There's all this division that's happening. And so he goes back to say, remember what this table is all about. Verses 23 through 26 are going to be very familiar because we read these verses nearly every single week to prepare for the table. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to use these verses to unpack a theology of the Lord's Supper to remind us of what it is and what the purpose of it is. And just going to draw from these verses and also some of the statement of faith and catechisms that we use here at Trinity. So the first thing to note, the Lord's Supper comes from 
the Lord Jesus. It is his supper. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus instituted this supper by breaking bread and drinking the cup with his disciples at a meal. And this practice is passed on to you. Jesus Christ is the source of what we do each and every week here at Trinity City Church. We do this because the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose from the dead, instituted this supper for his people to take together. This is ordained by God, ordered by Christ, and that is why we take the supper together. Second, the Lord's Supper displays the gospel for us to remember the gospel. You notice how that was repeated in those verses, that we remember the gospel. We take the bread to remember. We take the cup to remember. And we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then the last verse says that whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right now, I'm proclaiming the gospel with words, but when you come to this table each and every week, this is a tangible and visible proclamation of the gospel. When you get that bread in your hand, you remember because the bread is proclaiming to you the broken body of Jesus Christ. When you get the cup in your hands, that cup is proclaiming to you the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so each and every week we gather to remember the gospel. Third, the Lord's Supper is not a means of salvation. We don't take the supper to be saved from our sins. We believe that Christ died once for all for our sins. It's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sins. It's his atoning death that gives us salvation. But the Lord's Supper is a celebration that gives thanks for that source of salvation each and every week. Fourth, the Lord's Supper confirms and nourishes the believer. For those of us who believe and confess in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace because it not only remembers the gospel, but celebrates the fact that God's presence through Christ is here in our midst in a very unique way. This is communion very uh, literally in the sense that Christ is here because he's raised from the dead, he ascended to heaven, and he's still alive and at work in history, and he meets us in this table when we come to the table with faith and we're nourished by his presence. I remember preparing my, my daughter a couple of weeks ago for baptism and also because she was getting baptized she was going to take communion for the first time and to think about this part of the theology when she's coming up here and she's going to uh, take a piece of bread and a cup from a brother and sister in Christ because communion's about uh, doing that together but it's also not just a human activity in a very mysterious but real way God's presence in Christ shows up here so I wanted her to picture going to a literal table as if Jesus was sitting there ready to partake with her because the risen Christ is indeed alive and here and at his churches gathering with his people. And finally, the Lord's Supper is a celebration by the church. So when you take the Lord's Supper, it brings us, yes, into communion with God, but also with one another. And this is the main point of the text is that this Table is a means of bringing people together, but there were people in the church that were using it as an occasion to divide against one another. 
so that, that, that they wouldn't be generous with one another. Instead, they were humiliating one another and therefore disgracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is communion in that it is communal, not because it's just you individuals participating in this, but it's a body of believers where the Holy Spirit is active in our lives and we are coming together here as one to have communion with one another and with the Lord who is here. One thing I want to say before I close with the verses that Paul closes with is I know some people that are visiting or new to Trinity might be wondering why do we do this weekly because I know with some Protestant churches it's not very common necessarily to do weekly communion. And I'm hoping by just unpacking these five points of what the Lord's Supper is that you see why we do this weekly. How important and rich this table is and why we would want to do this weekly. And it's one of those things when I studied uh, liturgy and, and I'm the founding pastor of Trinity, so it's like, well, what's, how, are we, how are we going to do this? When we come together, how, how are we going to sing and pray and preach and how often are we going to take the Lord's Supper? And I remember looking in, into church history and seeing that for most of church history, the Lord's Supper was taken every single week when the church gathers. In fact, most ancient liturgy is structured around two parts of a service where the first part is about proclaiming God's word and everything that goes before it is preparing your hearts to hear God's word being proclaimed. And then you respond in the second half of the service by coming to this table, responding by celebrating in communion, in communion with one another and with the Lord, and that we come here to remember and be nourished by the gospel in the second half of the service, which is the Lord's Supper. And everything's built around this and then to be able to go out into our mission field as people who have been nourished by the gospel, both the proclamation of the gospel and the tangible display of the gospel that happens at this table. And why we wanted to do that is the reality that the Lord's Supper nourishes us. It's another way that we not only remember the gospel, but we're nourished by faith or through faith by the very presence of God, and you don't want to go long periods of time without nourishment. And so, therefore, we come together each and every week to be nourished by the gospel at this table. Here's how Paul concludes this section. He says in verses 33 through 34, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. I always want to know, like, what were they? We don't have them, but like you read things like that in the letter. I'm just like, keep going, Paul. Get long-winded here. But we don't know what the further uh, instructions and directions were. But it's one of the ways that he's emphasizing yet again, especially in verses 33, that when you gather, you do this together. When you gather, you're together. You're one in Christ. You are together. You are not separate. When we gather, we eat together. And I think that is such a refreshing reality that we get to have each and every week because most of you, if you're like me, are weary with the reality of division. Maybe division in society at large. Maybe you've even experienced division within a local church where somebody broke fellowship over you with you over some trivial, weird thing. And that hurts. It's painful. 
but one of the things we get to enjoy each and every week is a countercultural reality that the gospel brings people together. And so there might be ways that society divides over something. Maybe you have family members that, that, the, that you've had divisions with, but you could have those same beliefs and those same realities in this space, but you're going to come together at this table despite those differences of opinions and things that are happening in society. Let me give you an example of how this looks. Let me get practical ones. Like you will hold beliefs and views about this world that other people will not agree with, including those in these pews. So let me put my, uh, my experience on the table to give you an example. So, uh, and I don't talk a ton about my political opinions here, so give me some grace. We'll see if this is a safe place or if it's a place of judgment here. So I'm going to share one political opinion with you, okay? And, that, and it's a local po political thing, so here we go. So I would, I'm a part of the camp that, that thinks that we should tear up I-94 and fill it in and turn it into a boulevard, okay? This is a debate that's happening right now. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's this campaign that MnDOT is doing where they're rethinking I-94 and they're taking all these ideas of what should we do? Should we do a land bridge? Should we just make it more lanes and wider and take out more of the neighborhood and pollute it and blah, 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 blah? You can already see my bias, right? So like, what should we do, right? What should we do? And, and there's this one campaign called Twin Cities Boulevard that says, let's fill the thing in, connect the roads, build some houses, and just, and just get rid of the interstate altogether. And then I had a brother in Christ here whom I love that heard that I had this belief and came up to me after the service once and said, I heard that you believe that we should get rid of I-94. I said, yes, I do. He says, that is the stupidest belief <laughs> that I have ever heard in my life. And you know what we did after we had that conversation? We took this table together. Amen, church? That's the point. People, like, break friendship. Sever family ties over stuff like that right now. But this table each and every week has people that are on different sides of debates like that and others. And we say, we're going to disagree, but then we're going to come to this table. Because it might have some division over this, but not, not so strong that it's going to divide our fellowship. Because the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, his broken body and shed blood for us, that matters more than our opinions on what to do with local politics. Way, way more. This has the ability to unite, even if we have disagreements in other things. So I don't care how you voted, all right? Regardless of how you vote in elections, we're to come to this table united. I don't care how you navigated COVID-19 and continue to do so. We're doing it in different ways, and people are very passionate about it. But at this table, we come together despite those differences because the blood of Jesus Christ speaks a better word, proclaims a better gospel, and it's a gospel that says because of the blood of Jesus Christ, humanity can come together again and be forgiven and renewed and, and, and have hope in that future restoration. Amen, church? Amen. This is a blessing each and every week, and I want you to come wide-eyed knowing that despite the divisions you see in the rest of the world, this is a, a weekly habit that brings us together because of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ.